You're listening to the Blue Family Tree Podcast. We're here to help you rob the pension bank. It's your host, coming to you from Colorado, Patrick Rice. Welcome back, family, to another episode of the Blue Family Trees podcast. Uh, my name is Patrick Rice. I am your host for this podcast. And today we're going to be talking about a front row ticket to the best show on earth. Uh, we're also going to be joined by a friend of mine uh, later in the podcast. And we will get with him uh, and I'll explain who he is uh, here in a few minutes. But right now, welcome to the show. You've got a front row ticket to the best show on earth. In exchange, you're expected to work nights, weekends, holidays. But beware, this is a very draining to watch show. Uh, And when you're in the front row there, you're definitely going to get wet. Uh, So make sure you tend to your needs as necessary so you'll last to the end. Trust me, there's no other job on earth as entertaining, educational, joyful, saddening, rewarding, stressful. The adjectives never end, but there's no other job on earth like it. Uh, we've all been asked to explain a day at our job, and no doubt we've all had uh, taken a big breath, filled our cheeks, blown out our lips before responding. A typical day? Well, there isn't one, really. The same people who ask us questions like this turn on the evening news to see what happened that day while we were there. We turn on the evening news to see if we'll have to bring ice cream to briefing tomorrow. But this is why we love our jobs. We're not the type of people who like monotonous, repetitive work, crunching numbers, or creating widgets isn't for us. Problem solving? Crisis handling? That's us. I love that I have been doing this for two decades now, and I can still say, never seen anything like that before when I leave calls. Unlike the masses, our jobs can't be justified by productivity reports and customer bases. We don't get to find out at the end of the month if we sold enough couches to pick up a nice bonus. Not instead, we have to constantly be accounting for our time. Whether it's report writing, business checks, calls for service, whatever we do, we have to be able to tell our supervisors that we were there because we felt it was where we could have the greatest impact on the community that we serve. You see, we can't prove we saved a life tonight when we arrested that drunk driver. And we can't say for a fact that we prevented an armed robbery when we drove through a high-crime neighborhood and never even contacted anyone. But we know we did. See, our reach is so enormous every time that we leave the station that we really can't even quantitate it. And most of the time, if we tried to, we would sell ourselves short. Always view your career and the thoughts and feelings you have as unique to you and others like you. When you try to compare yourself to the private sector workers, you'll never make sense of what you're looking at. See, I want you to get to think about a few things in that light. See, first, let's think about how are you adjusting to the show? Is there one type of call that bothers you more than the rest? Although most of the time it's carnage, it doesn't have to be. Maybe you're bothered by a suffering animal or spousal abuse. It's completely normal to have your own thing. The key is to recognize it and address it. Understand why it bothers you, to what degree it bothers you, and what are the best tools for handling it. Second, make sure, uh, are there areas that you really excel in? Why do you particularly uh, do well at, say, victim interviews, but not as good at suspect interviews? How is your approach different? Is there a response inside you that makes you better at one than the other? Or maybe do you feel you're stronger uh, when you have a partner or do you prefer to work alone? What is it about that answer 
that's either good or bad or uh, somewhere in the middle that might help you grow as an officer to understand. Third, is your family enjoying their ticket to the show? Or are you leaving them out? They don't have to be in the splash section with you, but they do enjoy being in the show. There are very few perks to being a cop family, so let them enjoy your career with you. Fourthly, I'd say uh, the show sets the stage before you arrive. Do you direct it once you get there? Where is your confidence level at when you're on a scene? Is the scene yours or do you allow other parties to uh, control or have some control? Is there an answer to that that's all good or all bad or somewhere in between? I don't know. That's for you to decide. And finally, when your role is done and it's time to take off your costume at the end of your shift, are you ready to go home? Or are you ready to come back the next day? Both questions are equally as important. If one is answered with a no, find out whatever you can do to fix it. In today's rapidly changing law enforcement environment, it's never been more important than to have your head in the game for whatever comes your way. Unfortunately, the list of things that can come your way is longer than any of us can write out. Because tonight, some of us will see something that no one has seen before. It's true. This is the front row ticket to the greatest show on earth, but it comes with a price. Make sure you're up to that task before you go in. Joining us now is New York City police officer and founder of Leo Weekend, Austin Glickman. Austin began Leo Weekend while he was in the police academy and has proven to be one of the fastest growing police nonprofits in the country. Leo Weekend hosts tens of thousands of law enforcement officers and their families on weekend getaways, usually to places cop families could not otherwise afford and always includes events and opportunities to relax with like-minded families without the hassle of the general public. Perhaps the most important part of all is that it always invites, at all expenses paid, a number of families of fallen officers. <laughs> yeah, talk about a guy who understands the importance of our blue family and continuing to look out for one another. Austin Glickman gets it, which is exactly why the Blue Family Tree and Leo Wicken have partnered in the ways that we have. So outside of NYPD and Leo Weekend, Austin dabbles a bit on the other side of the alley as an EMT and firefighter on the large, one of the largest fire departments on Long Island. Austin, welcome to the show, brother. What's up, Pat? How are you? Doing great, doing great. So you're coming into a show where we've been talking about uh, a front row ticket to the best show on earth. And who better to talk to with a uh, front row ticket? Uh, experience and opportunities than uh, somebody from NYPD. Uh, so tell us about NYPD. What's it like out there? How are things going in the Big Apple? Well, things are going, they're going, we'll say, <laughs> in the in the Big Apple. Um, I think that's the same that can be said for the entire country at this point. Uh, a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Um, but when it comes to the NYPD, uh, especially for those outside of the New York area, everyone knows the NYPD. Uh, you know, we're, we're world famous, right? Um, all the TV shows, all the movies, everything's either about LAPD or NYPD. Sure. Well, and the two biggest agencies in the country, they got to be on the, two biggest on the TV. Agencies in the country. Yeah. So there's about 37,000 New York city police officers. Um, just to put that into perspective, if you were to combine uh, the number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 largest police departments in the country. Uh, if you add them all up, it still wouldn't reach the numbers that the NYPD has. Damn, that is crazy. That is a lot of cops in one place. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of cops. And then that's not even including, you know, our civilian staff, the you know school safety agents, the traffic agents who all fall under the NYPD. Um, 
I think uh, they say if, if, uh, if the NYPD was was an army, we'd be something along the lines of the fifth largest standing army in the world. That's outrageous. Do you still Which have is, guys yeah. on foot patrol, like 10 hours on foot? We do, yeah. So depending upon uh, your location, and, and mainly those guys that are on foot patrol are, are posted up. And when I say guys, I mean guys and girls, of course. Um, they're yeah, we got to make sure we include everybody today, right? We can't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't, yeah. can't overlook any genders. Yeah, I don't want to get in trouble. And, and the NYPD is the most diverse police department in the world, of course, being that we're so large. Um, but uh, if, if you were to go into Times Square, as an example, everyone knows Times Square, you will find, you know, hundreds of police officers in that area that are that are on foot posts. Because, uh, you know, more for, more than anything, it's a command presence. Just sure. So, so what do they do when they arrest somebody? Do they call in a car? Uh, well, the, the Times Square does have a sub precinct directly located in the middle of Times Square. So you Square. just walk your arrestee to the precinct? <laughs> yeah, you can. Uh, you can literally walk them right over to, to the, uh, the sub precinct or, uh, the first precinct, excuse me, some of the other precincts, uh, the 17th, the 18th, they're all in the area. So yeah, you could call a car over and, uh, and transport them, or you could literally walk them over depending upon how close you are. You know, what's amazing about New York is it's such a different beast. Like you say, uh, you could add up the third, fourth, fifth, and so on, whatever, whatever the numbers you said was, and you still wouldn't add up to the number that there are in New York, which just brings us to the point that, you know, you could be for Dallas PD or even Chicago PD, and you wouldn't really be able to grasp the concept of a foot patrol for one and, and arresting somebody walking with them to the jail. Uh, it's just so much different in such a big city like that just to even other big cities. It's just crazy how diverse and huge the NYPD really is. Yeah. And, and New York city, you know, for the most part, everyone always thinks of times square, right? They think of Manhattan. Sure. A lot of people fail, fail to realize that uh, New York city consists of five different boroughs. Um, an easier way to think of it uh, is, you know, five different counties really uh, within New York city. So you have, you have Manhattan, of course, you have Queens, Brooklyn, you have Staten Island, which everybody always forgets about. Uh, and you have the Bronx and the Bronx of course is a very well-known location also because of Yankee stadium. And of course of the, the high crime rates, uh, you know, in, in, in the Bronx, uh, especially the South Bronx. So when, when you look at, at New York city, uh, outside of Manhattan, really, um, that's where you start seeing a lot more of the normal patrol cars, as, as right. you know, you would think uh, doing normal patrol. But even outside of, of uh, Times Square, if you were to go north of Times Square and start entering into areas of Harlem or the west side or east side of the island, again, you're, you're entering more into the, uh, the normal patrol uh, guys, you know, driving around in cars uh, as opposed to being on footposts. So what you're trying to tell me is why you're a lot different. You're not so different all over. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, again, we're, we're such a vast department. Um, it, it just depends on your specific location or, or what you're doing that specific day. And there's so many more units than just patrol and detective. You know, most departments only have a, you know, five or six specialty units. Mm -hmm. The NYPD has hundreds of different units throughout the department, things that even I, as an NYPD member for almost seven years now, have not even heard of. I just, sure. you know, there's such, there's, there's these little niches and these little unique units that, that no other department in the world has, except for us here in the NYPD. Well, so I know I met a friend of yours a while back. Uh, I apologize that I don't know his name, but uh, I remember he was on the detail for the mayor, but it wasn't uh, necessarily protection detail, more just the dressing that followed him around. Yeah, right. So uh, just another type of unit that's out there that, you know, we have we have officers that are assigned to the mayor's house or, uh, you know, city hall. Um, 
and then of course he has his own specific detail. Uh, you'll, you'll never see any uniformed officers really around him. Most of them are all in, in plain clothes and suits, uh, just like any dignitary protection that you would find, you know, across the country. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's just such a vast, uh, majority well, of different units out there. Well, tell us, uh, what, what you're doing now. Are you on patrol or where, what unit are you with? And, uh, give us, give us some examples of the best, uh, the front row seat to the best show on earth. Sure. So, so for six years of, of my career so far, I've been in the 30th precinct, which is located on the West side of Harlem. Um, notoriously Harlem is known, you know, uh, high crime, high drug area, but it also has a really great history. Um, a lot of, uh, great musicians came from Harlem, you know, going as far back as, you know, the, uh, the early 1900s, 1920s when, and thirties and forties when jazz was, you know, a popular music style back then. And, um, if you want to go back even further with Alexander Hamilton living in Harlem and writing a lot of the, uh, the, the such important documents for, for the birth of this country as it formed. Um, and as uh, Hamilton is now on Broadway or well, it was on Broadway when COVID wasn't a thing. Um, you know, there are a lot of tours in, in the area and then visiting Alexander Hamilton's house and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's also, a, it's a pretty diverse community where I work. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's called Spanish Harlem predominantly back in the day, it was black and Hispanic. Uh, but now it is becoming a little bit more gentrified. So you have, you know, people of all races and nationalities living in the area. Um, so it, it, it's a really great place to work. Uh, now this might be uh, a little shocking to some, but the area that I patrol is only about a mile and a half long. Wow. But there's hundreds of thousands of people in that mile and a half. Uh, you know, we have some of the largest buildings in my precinct are 30, 40 stories tall. So just imagine how many people are living in just that one building alone. So I'm guessing you're not in a, are you in a car working a mile and a half? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So pretty much I can get from one, from one end of the precinct to the other end of the precinct in, in 45 seconds if, if needed. Um, That's the maybe. entire precinct is a mile and a half. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. The entire precinct is only. And you work this with a partner all the time. Yes. Yeah. So we, we work with a partner. Um, that's how the NYPD rolls. Uh, almost every single person in the police department has a partner and you're, you're with them throughout your entire tour. So uh, the way that the 30th precinct is broken down is we will have uh, at least anywhere between four to six patrol cars working that day. And there's at least two cops in each patrol car. Mm. Uh, so we would have, and, and we're actually considered a small precinct, uh, actually probably one of the smallest. Um, so on any shift, you probably have around 16 cops or so. Um, but for some of the larger precincts, like we'll say the 75th precinct that everybody knows in, uh, in East New York, they can have upwards of 400 cops. Sure. And they're also only a mile long. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, you know, think about a 400 cops in, in, a, in a one mile, you know, area. It's, uh, everywhere. Does you look, the, there's, does there's the citizen cops. to police officer ratio remain roughly the same? Well, there's, you know, there's, uh, between eight and 9 million people in, in New York city. Right. And there's 37,000 cops. Right. And then of course, you know, we have days off, right? Uh, the eight to 9 million people in New York city don't really have days off. Cause even if they're not working, they're still living in New York city. Sure. Oh, well, I don't so, think I've done the math on uh, New York city's numbers exactly, but uh, I, th I think it's uh, generally speaking one officer to every, uh, I think it's 13,000 
across the country, one officer to every 13,000 citizens. So yeah, I'd just be curious to know where you got 400,000 working in a precinct, or I'm sorry, 400 working in a precinct, if that ratio remains the same as it does where you have 18 working in a precinct. Right. Um, Probably not. Uh, the reason that there's so many in that one little precinct is that uh, East New York, especially the seven, five precinct is one of the busiest commands in the entire NYPD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, cr- the crime rate is, is, is massive. Sure. Um, the seven, five, the seven, three, the six, seven, those, those three commands that are all right next to each other are extremely busy. Yeah. Um, so of course you're going to have a lot more cops there because you're answering so many more emergency calls. Well, I want to get to some stories from you, but first uh, you, you just spiked one question while you were uh, talking a minute ago. I'm just curious when you go through the New York police Academy, uh, do you have to take a history class on New York where you, you learn some details about your area and what and you do? Cause the you history do. there goes clear back, you know, to, to uh, you know, the Mayflower. So Right. Yeah. So, I mean, New York City has such such um, amazing history behind it that when you're in the police academy, yes, one of the first things that you do learn actually is about the NYPD. Yeah. And, and, and how to beat your dog. <laughs> we actually just have a puppy. Um, it's my, my friend's puppy we're, we're watching right now. So I have my dog and the puppy both here in the house. And the puppy is behind the door right now. And he's uh, no worries. That, that, that's what makes uh, COVID things fun. It's doing things from home, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm sorry so, to interrupt you. No, no, totally fine. So, so yeah, because you know the New York City and the NYPD has such such great history. Uh, one of the first things you learn in the NYPD is the history of the NYPD, and you actually are 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 expected to to learn it and memorize it. And yes, you are tested on it as part of your one of your first quizzes is actually part of the uh, about the NYPD and the history and and you know um, it even goes back as you know who was the first black police officer in the NYPD. Being that you know it's Black History Month right now, right? It's a right. great topic, and I, I still remember Samuel Battle. Yeah, it's you know it's just it's it's these it's these little things that you learn, and and uh, it's it's really all about pride, right? When mm-hmm. you put on this uniform and you put on this patch, and everyone knows the NYPD patch, it's it's so well known. There is so much history behind that patch. And maybe it's changed over the years. Maybe the colors have changed. Maybe the design has changed, but it represents the same thing just like it did, you know, back going, you know, over 175 years ago. Yeah. In 2020, the NYPD celebrated its 100, 175th anniversary. Wow. And they made really, really cool NYPD uh, 175 year anniversary patches that some, some of the, the cars have on them now. And uh, yeah, I mean, the history is just, it's unbelievable. Well, you've got about a hundred years on my agency. I think we just celebrated our 80th anniversary last year. So we're yeah. right. We're, we're just about a century behind you, but we're also 2000, <laughs> 2000 miles West of you. So I yeah. guess that's, I guess that's fair. One of the greatest right. things I remember personally about New York PD was uh, I, I went to the funeral for the Tacoma four uh, back in the day when they were gunned down over their briefing in a coffee shop in uh, in uh, Tacoma, Washington. And uh, after the funeral, we met uh, thousands of us met at uh, a bar and just overran the bar. Uh, it was pre-planned, but uh, nonetheless, we overran the place and the New York officers were incredible. You, you guys brought, um, you brought bagpipes. Uh, you had cars in the procession. Uh, I don't know if they flew the cars out or drove, but, the, but New York had a presence and it was amazing. And they ended up taking off their uniform shirts and their badges and giving them to people. Uh, I don't know if they just had too much to drink and that's the way that they roll, but uh, yeah, they, they were uh, extremely uh, pro blue, uh, very friendly people. And uh, it really left me with a, a great uh, respect for the NYPD. Well, what I can say is this, when COVID finally goes away and we, we have control over it and we're start 
you know, we're, we're able to do large events again. Um, anyone who is active or even retired law enforcement, if you come to New York City during a major event, let's say, you know, times uh, going to a Times Square for the New Year's ball or you're coming for St. Paddy's Day Parade or whatever it is. If you show an NYPD officer in the area your shield and ID, uh, there's a really good chance that that officer is going to help you out. And they may able to may be able to bring you to the front of the parade. They may be able to get you some type of memorabilia. We bend over backwards normally for other members of law enforcement. And, yeah, that's um, amazing. You know, I hope that other departments across the country do the same. From my own experience, I know that they do. I know that that's for a fact. Um, you know, you could go anywhere in the world and you tell, you know, another member of law enforcement that you yourself are a member of law enforcement. There's this, this bond that you instantly have with one another. Absolutely. I'm sure the same goes for being a firefighter or, you know, a paramedic. Um, but well, and I'd like to think know, actually that we extend that to firefighters and paramedics as well. Uh, you know, we're all yeah, first responders. You know, right. It, you know, and, and professional courtesy, um, it goes a long way, right? We, we sure. all deal with the same thing. We're always on the scene with one another. So, uh, but there's, there's this really this special bond, I'd say, with law enforcement specifically. Um, almost like a blue all, family, huh? Almost like a blue family. Like if there was a tree in the in the vest. Sure. You know, sure. <laughs> you know we're all, Austin we're all Glickman, the same cousin. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, we have this lineage, I guess you could even say, you know, in law enforcement, where it's because there's such negativity around our profession that all we truly have is each other, and we have our families, right? And That's right. You know, you have your, 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 your blood family and your blue family. And uh, you, you go to, uh, you come to, to New York City and you tell us that you're a blue family. We'll treat you the, the best way that we can. Well, why don't you, why don't you tell us something about uh, the best the best show on earth there in, uh, in New York and we'll see if we can dissect it. And, uh, and you know, the whole concept here is that we're trying to save police lives um, sure. through, through, through storytelling as much as anything, you know, so that one person doesn't have to go through what somebody else went through or whatever. Every little snippet helps. So, yeah, uh, what, what, what do you got for us? Uh, some excitement there in New York. So I'm sure you could, you could imagine how many stories, you know, we have. And only having seven endless, years, I'm sure. Yeah, or only having six or seven years on a job like myself, I'm still. I wouldn't consider myself a rookie, but um, you know, I don't have nearly as much time as a lot of guys do on the job. Uh, but even in those six or seven years, I've probably responded to, I can't even thousands and thousands of emergency calls. Right, so it's really hard to pick and choose. You know, one or two uh, that are, you know giving such a good perspective of the greatest show on earth, but there's always one or two that stand out. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that, that really stands out and I'm sure it's, it, it's almost like a typical call um, for anyone is a domestic. Oh yeah. So everyone in the entire country responds to domestics. It's probably one of the number one emergency calls that we will respond to as police officers. And it was just your typical day. I used to, I used to work on the uh, the four to twelve, which is our, our mid shift, four p.m. to to midnight, uh, also known as the busiest you know shift in in New York City. And I did it for a reason. I, I love to to be active and, and and a proactive police officer. Yeah, it's because you were still young. I was still young, right? <laughs> now that I'm, I, I mean, I'm still young, right? I'm only thirty one, but but now you know, six or seven years on the job. You know, I'm getting to that point where you know I question: Do I want to keep doing this, or or do we want to try to find you know something a little bit less? Uh, sure, you start to figure out you have to pace yourself a little bit. Right, you got to pace yourself, and especially now because of all the new laws that are being passed throughout the entire country, and they're looking to try to get. Don't rid of, tell me uh, you're catching a little blue flu up there in New York. No, well, I I won't say that, but I'm sure some have. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, they're looking to get rid of qualified immunity here in New York city. They're trying to pass some laws. And, you know, if that's the case, it, you know, you it's, it's, why do you want to put yourself in, in that position to, to get yourself jammed up and sued, you know, it's a struggle. The whole country is dealing with for yeah, sure. Right. So yeah, everyone's dealing with this. So anyway, going back to the, to the story. So I'm working a four to 12 shift with my partner and um, we hear a domestic call come over and it's, we have a lot of domestic violence shelters in our precinct, a, a lot of battered women homes in, in our precinct. And um, we also have a lot of uh, SROs, single room occupancy uh, buildings in our precinct, which pretty much are for uh, those who are less fortunate, they're homeless and the city is paying for them to stay in a, a small room as opposed to being out on the street. So, this particular building that we were dispatched to is a very well-known uh, domestic violence shelter. Um, it's also an SRO. And uh, we probably go there, you know, five to 10 times a day. It's a large building, a lot of people living in the building. And we, we go there typically for any emergency under the sun. So we get dispatched to this, to this, uh, to this building, comes over as, as a domestic a third-party caller stating that there's a man and woman arguing and fighting in uh in the apartment mm -hmm. so we walk up to the door me and my partner and we were actually backing another unit so it wasn't even technically our job it was a different unit's job who we were backing uh, so it was four police officers on scene i happened to be the first one walking up the stairs i knock on, on the door and you could hear a lot of screaming and you could hear a baby crying and i'm knocking and i'm knocking and no one's answering the door but we could hear that there's commotion going on inside this room uh, now, at this point, I don't have uh, reasonable suspicion to uh, believe that a, a, a crime is occurring. Just yelling is not a crime. So I can't you know, force the door open. But at the same point, we can't just walk away because you can tell somebody's in, in distress. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, how much distress? Are they in enough stress where I can take the door or I can't? So we're at the point where we, we have to potentially call our sergeant to the scene and, and let them make that decision. So as I'm talking to the other cops, I, I knock one more time. And again, I'm using a pretty aggressive knock and I'm, you know, shouting, you know, police, you know, come to the door. And I finally hear a faint female voice coming from the other side of the door saying that he's got a knife. He won't let us leave. And I have my baby with me. It just got a little more intense. Right. So now you go from your, your, your normal domestic violence call, now, which we all know domestic violence calls in general are not ever normal. Um, you know, law enforcement officers lose their lives on a, a almost a weekly basis responding to domestic violence calls. Mm -hmm. There's so much, there's so much passion behind these calls. There's so much hate and love that, you know, people do crazy, crazy things when, uh, when they're in, in arguments with, with their loved ones. So, you know, domestic violence are, are extremely dangerous calls to begin with. Now you add a baby and a female behind a locked door with what I assumed to be a male subject who I had yet to make any contact with holding a knife to the woman. Now I have a barricaded uh, hostage situation. Yep. Time so to you, do some quick problem solving. Right. So you go from zero to a hundred real quick. So now we get on the radio and now we're calling, you know, for everybody. We're calling for the Sergeant. We're calling for our emergency services unit, which is like our uh, SWAT team. And we're calling for, you know, our, our hostage negotiators and we're calling for our uh, Taru, which is uh, um, the guys who come in with all the specialized equipment with the cameras and uh, the ability to listen into the room and yada, yada, yada. They have all the technical stuff, the technical response team. 
problem is by the time everyone gets there, you know, that could be another 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know? So what do you do for those 10 or 15 minutes until the cavalry arrives? Sure. So at this point I'm pleading with the gentleman behind the door to speak with me and I'm not getting answers, but what I could hear is that he's moving things in front of the door. Now, I know I had no communication with the male, but I had some type of communication with the female. So I'm asking her to tell me what's going on. She's telling me that he's moving a bookshelf and the stove and anything that he can get his hands on in front of this door to really barricade himself. I'm asking her to give me a description. She's telling me he's a black male, you know, uh, shaved head, is wearing whatever the description of the clothing was, and he had a large kitchen knife, and he kept threatening to kill her and the baby if we were to, to make entrance. So we back off and we're trained as NYPD police officers that you control and isolate the incident as much as possible until we can get in the guys who have the specialized training, like our SWAT team. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the guys who come in, you know, in the, in the full gear and they have the flashbangs and everything else to make entry if needed. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm finally communicating. Now the guy starts telling me, you know, get the fuck. I'm not to curse. Sure. He's yeah. cursing. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. So he's, <laughs> you know, he's telling me get the fuck back. He's going to, he's going to hurt her. He's going to kill them. Yada, 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 this, that, and the other. And I'm just trying to say, listen, man, you don't want to do this. You know, this is your loved one. You, you, you gotta, you gotta listen to me. And within around another minute or two of me and him making a connection. Now he's telling me that he's going to come out with the knife. So we start, you could hear he's moving the things away now from the door. So now our, our team, the four officers, we back up. And the door, the door opens and we're now down the hallway. So I draw my weapon. My partner has their taser out. Two other officers behind us have their weapons out. And I'm thinking to myself, if this guy comes out the door and starts advancing at us, I'm going to have to kill this guy. You know, that's you're, you're, you're mentally preparing yourself that in the next second or two, my life is completely going to change because I'm going to take somebody else's life. That's a scary situation to think about, right? Especially when you have the time to think about it. There's plenty of times as police officers where, you know, you have to pull your weapon and discharge your weapon and there's no time to think because it happens so quick. It's almost like that might even be better because you're not thinking about it. You're not second guessing yourself. But I had enough time to think that if this guy comes and advances towards us, I'm going to, I have no other choice but to shoot at him because we're in this very tight hallway. There's really nowhere else to go. And we can't flee because if we flee, what happens to the woman that's behind that door? Sure, you have a job to do. Right? You can't, you can't right. just go away. I have away. my job. Right, yeah. exactly. So there's so many things running, running through my head. Maybe I should try to tase them. But what happens if I miss? You know, there's, there's the 20-foot rule in, in, in policing. You know, right. if somebody has, has a weapon, within that 20 feet, there's a good chance that they'll be able to get on top of you and begin to injure you before you're able to take your gun out of your holster and pull the trigger. Now, most people who are in law enforcement, they think, nah, no way, 20, 20 feet. I can easily get my gun out of my holster and pull the trigger. Ain't going to yep. happen. Yep. We all know you better, know? but we've been through the training and seen it. We've been through the training. So how did it roll out? What happened in the end? So, so in the end, long story short, um, the guy, uh, realize that we had our guns pointed at him and I'm pleading with this guy, please, you know, do not come out of that door. You know, we don't want to hurt you. We're here to help you, which we, we really truly were. And he, he, thank God he, he shut the door again. As he shuts the door within a minute or two after that, the cavalry arrives, our emergency services unit, they come, 
And once they're there, they pretty much take over. We now become secondary officers and we, we uh, take over the, the scene safety and these guys get in there. So they, they show up, you know, they're in full, you know, full vest and helmet and, you know, they're, they're ready for the worst and they have their shields and the high power, you know, weapons. And, and like I said, the flash, flash, flash bangs and so forth and so on. They take over, we back out. And for the next four and a half hours, oh my, we sat outside and we waited for hostage negotiators to get there. You know, we had guys on rooftops. We had guys on the fire escape trying to look in. Uh, the ta- Taru got in there and they were able to, you know, put uh, cameras inside the apartment, you know, through little holes in the door and finally see what was going on. And four and a half hours later, the guy finally gave up. Wow, that was a long and scene. Long, long time. So, you know, I may have only been there for maybe five to ten minutes, but it felt like an eternity yeah. being in that hallway pleading with this guy to, to not you know harm the baby or the child. That was a pretty intense for uh, five or 10 minutes. You know, uh, that's the most intense portion of that four hours is the first five to 10 minutes. It feels, it it literally feels like an eternity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is just one of so many different stories, you know, that we have now I've been, you know, uh, lucky enough where I've, I've, I've never had to actually, you know, fire my, my weapon unless I'm in training, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's been so many cops, especially lately that, that have to, you know, they're Mm -hmm. in these dangerous situations. Um, I just haven't found myself in one of those situations yet, but. Well, looking over that uh, particular story, you know, you think about responding versus controlling and uh, you know, in the beginning of any situation, all you're doing is responding and you're looking for that opportunity where you can begin to take control. And I think you identified that exactly when you realized uh, the last thing I'm going to respond to is him coming out that door. Uh, I need to control this before he does. And whether it was pleading or, uh, or ordering, or just demonstrating a fear in your voice that led him to recognize that he's going to die if he comes out this door. Uh, I think you took control of it right there. So it's that finding that spot in the uh, contact where you can turn from responding, which is what we do initially to controlling the situation. You talked about second guessing yourself. Uh, You know, should I, uh, because I have time to think about this, it's not a split second decision. I think that happens to a lot of officers uh, in situations like this, they start thinking about the case law and the liability. Uh, but you got a guy with a knife. Uh, tasing's not the option, brother. You, you know, you, you, we all know our training. We all have seen the stories, and we can stand in front of a jury of twelve and and explain ourselves. Uh, we don't want to, but that's something that we always have to keep in mind. And then one other thing that you said in there that I really took heart to is uh, you were there to help the suspect. And I think uh, I think as an overwhelming majority every day uh, on the streets across America, we are there to help the suspect, but uh, we're not viewed that way in the public. And I think that's a piece that we really need to try and turn around uh, and let the public know that we're like, we're not just there for one half of this. We're there for everybody. Right. We never show up to work one day thinking, Hey, I, I can't wait to go kill somebody. That just doesn't happen. Right. I don't go to work thinking I can't wait to arrest somebody today. Right. Again, it just, it's just not a thing, but it's part of our job, unfortunately. Um, you know, again, I can't tell you how many times where I've been on scene and I've had to plead with, you know, a suspect not to do them something stupid because I don't want to hurt anybody. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we go through so much training and so many psychological background checks and exams and testing before we're even allowed to become police officers. Right. You know, sure. Do some guys fall through the cracks every once in a while? Who maybe shouldn't be cops. Yeah, of course it happens. It happens to any profession. But for the most part, 99.9% of us don't go to work looking to actually hurt somebody. Right. We don't want to, we don't want to do that. Right. So 
And I think a lot of them, uh, they don't necessarily fall through the cracks, but uh, after that testing years down the road, something's changed in them Yeah, uh, no, for, for, for those, for those uh, very small percentage that, that end up yeah. having issues. Right. Uh, so, hey, hey, look, I, I really appreciate the story from NYPD. Uh, why don't you give me just a quick rundown on Leo Weekend? And I understand you have an event coming up that maybe the Blue Family Tree is also taking part in. Uh, we'd love to hear a little uh, quick background on Leo Weekend, how you got involved with that, and uh, sure. what's coming up. Sure. So Law Enforcement Officers Weekend, or LEO Weekend for short, uh, originated back in 2014 when I was still in the police academy. And the reason I created it, uh, this happened to be, at the time, the height of the anti-police sentiment across the country. This is when Ferguson was going on, um, you know, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, um, so many names that, that you, could, you could throw out across the country with mm-hmm. the killings of, of, of unarmed black men and, and riots across the country. And tensions were just so high and the stress levels for the officers was through the roof. Then, unfortunately, one day uh, that summer, officers Lou and Ramos from the NYPD were sitting in a patrol car in Brooklyn eating lunch and uh, a gunman, not even from New York city traveled all the way, I believe from Baltimore, put a gun to the window and started firing and Ramos and Lee were killed almost instantly. And, you know, he did it just because of the uniform that they wore. So, and you were in the Academy at the time. I was in the Academy at the time. Yeah. I believe that happened. Uh, I want to say it happened about two or three weeks right before I graduated. So mm-hmm. we're coming to the end of graduation and then, and then this happens. And uh, right then and there, I knew, all right, something, something has to be done. I went online one night. I did some, some Google research. I tried to find any organizations in the country that provided like weekend getaways or activities for the families of law enforcement. And I couldn't really find anything. Now, of course, there are some organizations out there that do small events um, or other types of activities. And there are amazing organizations, but nothing that I was able to find that I thought really harnessed in on, you know, family fun, relaxation, you know, de-stressing and, and so much more. Mm-hmm. So I started formulating this idea in my head. And uh, over the next three years, I, I built out this, this program all on paper, of course, until I got lucky enough where one day I happened to be in Lake George, New York. I was there for a family vacation and I, I ended up meeting the mayor who was a close family friend. Uh, to my now wife and uh, he happened to be the uh, former police chief and at the time there was a firefighter convention going on in Lake George, New York so I ended up saying to him, you know, hey, you ever do a police convention? He said, no, no one's ever brought the idea to us and that's how everything really started to, to, to start rolling wow, It really sounds like all the pieces just fell in line Pieces just fell completely in line uh, you know, out of luck or, or you know, out of uh, pure uh, I don't even know what to to call it because it just, it seemed too good to be true. Right. Um, And then I I got a grant from the village of Lake George to to help with the funding of the, of the event. And and that's how it really took off. And that was back in 2017. And since then we've grown now into this large, you know, nonprofit organization where I have an amazing board of of volunteers who help me out on a daily basis. And most of them are, are active or retired law enforcement themselves. We even have an FDNY firefighter on board. Um, pretty much all he does is sleep and eat all day though, but that's, that's, you know, (laughs) somebody has to, uh, someone's got to do it. Right. So of course the firefighters do it best. Um, and, uh, they're all really great guys and gals who who help out. And we started off as this really tiny little event up in Lake George. We only had 96 attendees our first year. And now, you know, looking into 2020, 2021, we've held events where we had a back to blue rally just a, a few months ago 
we had over 4,000 people show up and wow, another 4,000 who couldn't get in. So technically 8,000 in total. Um, we, we do boat cruises and we do fishing charters. We do, uh, we're doing, a, you know, paintball things this coming year, uh, Yankees and Mets games. And, uh, then of course we have our major weekends. Uh, we have a, the weekend up in Lake George that we do every year. We have a weekend down here in, in Long Beach every year, and that's specific to the families of officers that were injured in the line of duty. And now we have this major event that we're going to be doing October of 2021 this year in Miami. It's our first year expanding outside of New York. We have over 60,000 followers on Facebook, and we've received so many messages over the past few years asking if we were going to always move out of New York. And being that this is our five-year anniversary, we knew we wanted to do something big. What better place than Miami? specifically sure. in, in Key Biscayne, which is this beautiful island right off of Miami. And uh, it just has so much for everyone. So it's open to the public. We still have uh, about 60 or so hotel rooms left for the weekend. So if anyone's looking to come out, I highly recommend trying to register and, and, and getting your hotel room as soon as possible. It's at the Ritz-Carlton, an unbelievable deal, $199 a night for, for a normal room. And normally that room goes for 500 plus dollars a night and we're yeah. getting it for 199. And we have so many other organizations who are going to be there with us, helping us out. Um, I think one's called the blue family tree or something along the lines of that. <laughs> I think I've heard of there. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're going to be there and they're going to be, um, you know, having a, a seminar during the event and they're going to be helping us out. And, um, uh, Supro and national police wives association and brotherhood for the fallen, um, a bunch of the, the local uh, uh, nonprofits down there in South Florida. There's, gonna, there's just, there's so much um, love and support behind this event. I, I just can't wait. And uh, we're going to have fireworks. We're going to have seminars, boat cruises, uh, a day at the aquarium. We're doing barbecues, um, a concert, a car show, a 5k color run. There's just so much going on. And, and what makes this, event and this organization really so special i forgot to mention it is that aside from the event being open to the public and being open to all active our entire cops and their friends and their families the reason that we're 501c3 nonprofit is because one nobody in our organization takes a paycheck it's all 100 volunteer but two all the funding goes to help us bring the families of officers that were either killed or injured in the line of duty to these events all expenses paid yeah so we, we fly them in we pay for their hotels. We pay for their food. We, we even give them pocket money throughout the weekend. And uh, they don't spend a single dime. That's amazing. And it's cops and their families from across the entire country that show up. So, And that's the same in New York, too. Across the country shows up and is hosted. Uh, you bring in yeah, families yeah. have fallen from. I think you brought in uh, uh, that gal from uh, California last year. You brought in her family Natalie up Corona's, to New York. Yeah, N Natalie Corona, who who yeah. unfortunately passed away in the line of duty back in 2019. And, uh, you know, she only had two weeks on the job. Just mm -hmm. started out. She was, you know, she was at the scene of a car accident. And somebody not even related to the scene, just on a bicycle, just rode up to her and shot her for no no reason whatsoever. And, and she ended up passing away. And we flew her entire family in, thanks for the help from, with Brotherhood from the Fallen, flew them into New York. And we just had an unbelievable time with all the other families that were there. And our motto is bring your blood and blue families together. Yeah. So you got, you got your blue, blue family, even if it's not from your own department, but it's your blue family from other departments across the country. And then you got your blood family, right? You got your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, your, and your, your, your own personal friends yeah. and everyone's intermingling together. Well, what a great, so what a great reward for you to be able to, and I know it's not about you and it's not about your glory, but uh, I'll brag for you for a minute. It's just amazing that you're able to, uh, provide this opportunity for these families 
uh, and, and for others uh, to donate to your organization to help do that. Uh, that's one thing we always talk about with the Blue Family Tree is it's not just about taking care of that family. It's about providing people with an opportunity to do something for someone else. Uh, That giving side is always more important. The receiving side is amazing. Those families are grateful uh, that you can bring them along, but think about the families that haven't lost uh, their peace officer in the line of duty that go to Leo weekend and they help contribute to bringing that family up. Um, What an amazing reward for them, a personal satisfaction for them to be able to do that. Yeah, just, just being able to hang out at the bar or on the beach and, or smoke a cigar. And, you know, you don't know who the person is next to you, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many people from across the country. You know, that person could easily be, you know, the family member who lost a loved one in the line of duty. And you're there, you know, experiencing this really special moment with them. Yeah. And you don't realize how much it means to them. And I'll give you a quick example before we end this uh, podcast. Genesis Familia. Uh, the daughter of uh, Mia Soto's familia from the NYPD who was shot and killed the night of July 4th. She was sitting in one of our command vehicles uh, and a gunman came up to the, to the window and just pulled the trigger for no reason. And Genesis lost her mom right then and there. And Genesis at the time was only, I believe 20 or 21 and her two sisters, Peter, Peter and Delilah were 12 at the time. We brought them to Lake George. It was our, I believe it was our second year, second or third year of the event. And after the event was over, uh, Genesis and I were standing uh, outside one of the, uh, the, the venues where we, we had just finished the concert. And she comes up to me and she gives me this really big hug. And she's got tears in her eyes. And she goes, this is the first time since my mother's death that my, my siblings, Peter and Delilah, were able to be kids again. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that they were able to laugh and they were able to enjoy themselves. This is the first time that they were able to dance and, and, and have fun. And they're only 12 years old, right? And, be be and, kids. And Leo weekend and its donors give that to them. Exactly. And at that point, I'm not an emotional person, right? I, I just, I have this really hard exterior and I don't know what to do. I started looking around for somebody to, to help me out in this situation because <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And I started you know, having tears in my eyes. And the only thing that I could do is I just gave her another big hug, the biggest hug I've probably ever given somebody at that time. Because what else, what do you say to somebody who says that to you? Yeah, like, do, for sure. Do, do, you say, do you say thank you? I, I mean, I didn't feel th- thankful. I just, I just felt like I was doing what was right. Well, I don't and, think there are many people who have had that experience who could answer that question. No, no. And, 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 and since then, I mean, that has been the driving factor, the driving force to do more, right? And, and to, to do these events as much as possible because there's so many more families out there across the country that need this. And unfortunately, we only raise so much money each year where we can only bring anywhere between five to 10 families Right, a year to the event, and how many families did we lose last year? How many guys uh, or gals were killed last year? Over three hundred were lost in the line of duty last year alone, right? So yeah. I mean, we're we're only taking this fraction uh, each year to this event. But if we were able to raise more money, I would love to bring every single family to the event, but we just can't. Sure, logistic logistically, I could do it, but when it well, comes to funding, I can't. Tell us, uh, tell us where uh, people can go to find out more about Leo Weekend and uh, how they can get registered to come down and see us in Key Biscayne. Sure. So first and foremost, you can go to www.leoweekend.com, leoweekend.com, and directly on the front page, you'll see all of our upcoming events. Um, and we have a lot more coming this year. So you might only see five right now, but we have about 14 or so planned for the entire year. 
You can click on the, the Miami link. It'll, it'll show you everything that we have planned, show you a bunch of the partners that we have that are going to be at the event the entire weekend at itinerary. And on the website, you could even learn more about us. You could donate directly on the website. You can even find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, uh, you know, follow us. We're, we're always doing more. We're, we're very active on social media. Um, and we got a lot more, like I said, planned for 2021. This is, this is just the beginning. So, so get, get involved now. Get involved on the ground floor because we, we have plans to, to host events throughout the entire country over the next five years. We want to have a Leo weekend, even in Colorado. That's our plan over the next two years. We want to do a, a, a winter event in Colorado because right now most of our events are, are spring, summer, fall. We don't have a single, single event in the winter. So, Pat, I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at the Blue Family Tree to help us out in about another year or two. Yep, it's down the road. It's in the plans. I'm here to tell you, family, uh, if you're thinking that going on vacation with a bunch of cops sounds corny and something that you're not interested in, think about it. Because when I first met Austin, I kind of had that same thought. And then I started listening to him and looking at what he sets up, uh, the amount of work that goes into these uh, weekends, just the idea that you can sit down at the bar and you're sitting next to another cop or cop's family, and you don't have to try and be a sanitation worker for the weekend. Uh, you can actually be who you are. Uh, these weekends are a really amazing opportunity to just chill out and relax and uh, do some things that are familiar to you. And you don't have to do any of the work. Austin's put it all together for you. Uh, they really are amazing opportunities to just bond with uh, other people similar to you uh, and not spend a ton of money and break the bank to do it. Uh, Austin, it was really great to have you on the show, brother. We'll do it again soon, okay? Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to seeing you in, uh, in October in Miami. Absolutely. See you then, brother. And to all of you who joined us for this podcast today, we sure appreciate it. Make sure you go check out Leah Weekend at leahweekend.com uh, and see if you can get yourself some space in Key Biscayne. We'd love to see you there. Uh, once again, stay safe, keep your head down uh, on a swivel, and we will talk to you soon. You're listening to the Blue Family Tree Podcast. We're here to help you rob the pension bank.